Welcome to the Hellcraft Podcast, Episode 12. I'm Tina Seamonster, and each week I collect stories of your handmade life. Stories of how making and buying handmade connect us to our past and our future. This week's show is a little different. It collects two pieces from our first ever Summit of Awesome. The Summit of Awesome took place in Washington, D.C.'s mid-city neighborhood in May of 2009. 150 attendees and speakers joined us for a really amazing weekend of learning and making. Even though I found myself tied to a laptop for some of the event, I kept my podcaster's ears open for stories, and I heard some really great ones. This episode of the podcast is a little longer than usual because it collects one story from an attendee, as well as Saturday's Craft Notes speech with Jenny Hart. Act 1. Desperate Knitting. For part one of this episode, we asked Summit attendee Lori Gagne to call in the origin story of her business. This is a story that I heard at least twice over the weekend before I even met Lori on Sunday. It's a good one, so listen up. Hello, Craft. This is Lori Gagne. I'm the creator of Knit Out of the Box, the knitting kit for the desperate knitter. You know, I sort of started this business out of desperation, I guess. I was at an airport one day, and my flight was delayed, and stupidly, I forgot to bring my knitting with me. And so I scoured the airport looking for something to knit and couldn't find anything. And you know, you can only do so much Sudoku and uh, crossword puzzles, so I was getting a little desperate. And when I got home, I thought, this would be a really good idea to create a knitting kit to put in airport gift shops and hospital gift shops. Places where you could find yourself in a situation where you're sitting around and you don't have your knitting. So that's what I did. About six months ago, I started selling them. They're knitting kits that have absolutely everything in them that you would need to complete a very simple project. There are three projects, uh, three patterns in each kit, actually, and you get to pick the one that you want to knit. So I do give you a choice. But besides just having the patterns, it has... Some really wonderful 100% washable lamb's wool, beautiful bamboo knitting needles, a how-to knit card, yarn cutter, a darning needle, so pretty much everything you would need to complete the project. So my little adventure has been uh, quite exciting. My whole basement is filled with a thousand purple tubes with four different colors of yarn, and I've never had a business before, so... Starting this business, I really, truly did start it from scratch, even going as far as putting the graphics together. I contacted someone to do some graphic design for me, and what they quoted me was just way too expensive for me at that point. So I went out and bought a $300 graphic design program and taught myself how to do it in three days and then started designing my graphics. So I really, truly have done this pretty much from ground up, you know, and the whole concept of the desperate knitter, when I say that to people, they just, they just howl because they know exactly what I'm talking about. My situation in the airport is pretty common, but when I was at the Summit of Awesome this past weekend, weekend, which, by the way, was totally awesome. You guys did an amazing job. Someone told me the story of a woman who was knitting a pair of socks, and she boarded the plane, and uh, I sat on the tarmac for three hours. And she was cool because she could just continue knitting her socks. But she finished them in the amount of time that they were still sitting there on the plane. And she got very edgy, very anxious. So she unraveled the socks and started knitting them again. So I really think that there's a market out there for these kits. And I'm hoping that people will understand that. I think the hardest part for me at this point is trying to convince non-knitters and non-crafters that this just isn't your grandma's knitting anymore, that people knit all the time and it's not just 
old people that knit, that so many people knit and do amazing craft work, which was evident this past weekend. So that, I think, is the hardest thing in me marketing these to the non-craft people, is convincing them that, yes, knitting is a viable market and uh, there would be lots of people out there to uh, purchase these things. So anyway, that's my story, short but sweet. I hope this will help somebody else just sort of take the jump. You know, think of something, maybe a situation that you were in that, gosh, you know, if only, only if, you know, they had a knitting kit, I would be able to sit here and calm myself. Or if only if, I don't know, whatever, whatever your craft is, there's a market out there for it because otherwise people wouldn't be doing it. And the whole handcraft community is just so huge and there's a reason for that. One other thing I should say is I'm a product of the 60s and the 70s and when I was knitting and uh, crocheting and embroidering and doing all of those handcrafty things, I was truly a closet crafter. I grew up in the era where we were supposed to be, you know, taking on the world, not taking on tons of yarn and <laughs> stashing it in your basement. So I've got to say that it's just really wonderful that all of this is finally coming out into the open and I'm really, really, really thankful that I can be a part of it. So thank you very much and I hope this inspires somebody else to go out and do what they have a passion for. Thanks. Bye. Now, as I revealed in episode 10 of the podcast, I have no patience for knitting, but Lori's story made me feel like I was missing out on something. If knitters feel like being able to knit is this necessary, maybe I should try again. We'll see. Either way, Lori has a great story to tell her customers. People remember it, and she tells it well. We wish her the best in her business. Check out Lori's website at knitoutofthebox.com. K-N-I-T-O-U-T-T-A-T-H-E-B-O-X.com. Act 2. Sublime Stitching. We were extremely lucky to have Jenny Hart come all the way from Austin to speak to our group. HelloCraft's Executive Director Kimberly Dorn will tell you a little about Jenny before she speaks. Here we go. For those of you who weren't here yesterday, my name is Kimberly. I am the Executive Director of HelloCraft. I'm here with Tina Seamonster, who's our communications director, Sarah Dick, who's our marketing director, and Kelly Rand, who is our programming director. We'd like to welcome you all to our summit. I hope you enjoyed all of the morning sessions. We still have a lot of great stuff coming up. And we're going to do some announcements after Jenny comes on to speak. Just a few quick things. We are going to be recycling the Whole Foods boxes. So when you're done, if you can put trash in there, recyclables in the can by the fridge, and just line up the boxes on that white shelf there before you leave, that would be great. I'm going to introduce our Craft Note speaker. She's an awesome person. Um, most of you know her as the creative director behind the Texas-based embroidery company Sublime Stitching. She's been featured on the DIY Network, HGTV, and the Style Network. She's also the award-winning publisher of many books for Chronicle Books. And she is also one of the founders of the infamous Austin Craft Mafia. So if Jenny Hart is not your hero yet, she will be after you hear her talk. So without further ado, I'll introduce you to Jenny Hart. Hi. I want to, first of all, I want to thank um, everyone from HelloCraft for giving me accommodations to make it possible for me to come and inviting me to speak. I want to thank all of you for coming to hear me speak. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. I see so many faces of people that I recognize and have known over the years. It's really great to see you all in person. Usually when I give a talk like this, I like to find out what people want me to talk about. And usually what people want me to talk about is simply how I started my company. 
that, would you say yes? Right, yes, okay. Um, so uh, I'm happy to, that's a story I can tell. So I'll talk about that, but I'm going to try and leave at least a good 20 minutes for question and answers afterward. So my experience starting sublime stitching, I became interested in hand embroidery in the mid to late 90s. Needlework, sewing, crafting wasn't something that I did. I grew up wanting to be a fine artist. I loved to draw. My dad was a photographer. My mom, who is sitting right here, not really my mom, she's a corporate spokesperson representing my mom. <laughs> my mom was an art teacher, but she was a stay-at-home mom the whole time I was there. And I had a incredibly fortunate upbringing where all of, I told her brothers, and all of our creative pursuits were encouraged, and that was really wonderful. But crafting, if you were a teenager in the 80s, just wasn't the thing because it was really the next industrial revolution and people were just, you know, it was the birth of the malls and handmade stuff was just off everyone's radars. I did do a little bit of knitting. Uh, Phyllis White from church taught me how to knit an elderly British woman and I knit, I knit one scarf. But it was in the mid to late 90s that I started noticing embroidery. I thought it was beautiful. I loved the illustrative aspect of it. And it was totally foreign to me. I didn't know how to do it. And I started thinking about the fact that so many women before me knew how to do it. And my mom knew how to do it. And it was just kind of taken for granted. But I didn't know how to do it. And my attitude about it also was it looks really difficult. It looks like it would just drive me crazy to do it. I don't know anybody who can teach me. I'll never get That's a nice project idea. I'll probably never do it. But then it just kept, you know, it's like they say when you're, you're pregnant, the whole world looks like it's pregnant. Well, I started seeing embroidery everywhere. Every time it would leap out at me, and I just thought it was so beautiful. And I had this idea in my head where I thought, you know, I would like to see embroidery in other themes. You know, one of the reasons why I wasn't interested in it was <clears throat> it was primarily a craft. And craft, as for hobbyists, usually relies on a design platform. And I thought the design platform was outdated, and it didn't appeal to me. I didn't want to stitch up bunnies, and I didn't want to stitch up teddy bears, but I wanted to do my own work, but I didn't know how to do the needlework part of it. So it was probably in 1996 or 97 that my then-boyfriend was very into roadside attractions and unusual museums, and we went to the Glore Psychiatric Museum in St. Joseph, Missouri, which is the former state mental hospital. It's, um, it's not a happy place. And at the end of the museum, they had a room that was dedicated to patient artwork. And any of you who might be familiar with uh, the artwork of the mentally disabled, it's very poignant. There's something very fascinating about it. And there was a piece in there that provided a watershed moment for me. And this was a baby blanket that had been embroidered with words in all different colors. And they ran in kind of this haphazard way, and they were little bits of lyric and just kind of uh, poetry and just stream of consciousness. And when I saw that, I was so moved by it, but it also told me that this was something that helped this woman, that embroidering helped her, and it was therapeutic to her, and that anyone can do it, and you can do anything you want with it. And I went, I have to start doing this. So that piece was really really got to me. And the woman who did it was non-communicative. She wouldn't speak. And the nurses, I, I contacted the curator of the museum, and I said, what can you tell me about that piece? Are there more? And he said, everything that she did was thrown away, except for that one piece. <laughs> nurses would give her sheets, she would fill them up, they'd give her another one, they'd give her a pillowcase, and they would just throw them away. But that one piece remains. Um, you can still see it. I think there are examples online, they're hard to find, I'm going to try and make it available. So. 
Still time went by. A little bit of backstory. I always like to preface when I start talking about this by saying all of us go through difficult things. All of us have tragedy in our lives. I never like to talk about mine by saying, therefore, that's why I'm an artist, because I suffer uniquely. We all, we all have these things happen in our lives. My father was sick for many, many years from my childhood, and we spent many, many, many months in hospitals with my dad. Very complicated health history. My mother-in-law passed away from brain cancer. She was diagnosed three months after I was married. I was very close to her, I loved her. My grandparents passed away, and then my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer. And I kind of started losing it a little bit. I kind of started having a hard time coping. And I was at home with my mom after she had followed surgery, and I went, I still hadn't embroidered yet, and I still had it in my mind, and I went, I was bored out of my skull, and I went, I could embroider now. This is a good time to do this project. I'm with my mom. I bet we have all the materials here. It's something I can do with her mom. Show me how to embroider. So I got out a piece of scrap sheet, and there's this photo that was taken of my mom in the 50s, and it's kind of like glamour shots from the 50s when you could go and they put a shimmery curtain behind you and throw a first stole on you, and this was in my grandmother's house. And I always loved this photo, and so I worked from that photo to make a portrait of her. And I didn't know if I would keep doing it. I didn't know if this was like one of my little, like, this is a neat idea, I'm going to try it. Oh, I don't like it, I'm on to something else. So I sat down with my mom, and I didn't know anything. I put the needle through the front of the hoop to start. She's like, no, 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 you have to start from behind. Well, I hadn't found a single resource that took the time to just explain that simple stuff. This is how you put the fabric on the hoop. This is how you start. I'll show you the stitch that I know. It's a split stitch. And I started stitching, and I had a transformative experience of feeling total relaxation and concentration and the satisfaction of understanding how something that had intrigued me for so long actually worked and going, this is so simple. And it's so relaxing, and it washed away my anxiety, and I began embroidering for four to five hours every day for the next five years. It carried me through a very, very difficult time, and what happened to me was all my ideas about embroidery changed. I thought it was easier. I found out instead of it requiring patience of me, it instilled patience in me. It was so satisfying. I started appreciating handwork of embroidery by other women that I had appreciated before. I started looking at $3 fine embroidered linens in antique shops and going, somebody spent hours, somebody spent weeks working on this. So when you embroider, you have a lot of time to think about these things. <laughs> so a lot of this stuff started going through my mind, and I really, really wanted to... I, I started thinking, you know, there are. I know people are knitting, this is the perfect time to get people to start thinking about embroidering if there are people who maybe knitting is not for them, maybe they would like embroidery, who don't know how rewarding it is, but they don't have patterns that they want to work for. So I wanted to start a design company offering patterns that you could not get for embroidery to get people interested in embroidering. I like to draw, so that was fun for me. And then I also wanted to provide uh, instructions and text that explained embroidery in a way that I hadn't seen it explained before. Because I was looking at books, and I was going, I can't believe they explained the stitch like this. That makes it sound so much more difficult. It really, if you try it this way... And I was expecting needleworkers to come crashing down on my head saying, you can't tell people how to, you know, this is, the, they're very traditional. And I respect that. 
They're very traditional, but I felt like that was a turnoff. I felt like there was almost this slavish devotion to it has to be done this way, we must maintain these techniques. And while I always wanted to respect and maintain those, it's like, well, let's not make embroidery the next Latin language that dies. It's got to change and it's got to grow to live on. So um, that was the mission with Sublime Stitching, was to introduce updated designs and resources. You know, after I started Sublime Stitching, I always tell people that Sublime Stitching started at my desk and moved to the kitchen table, and then half of the front bedroom, and then the whole front bedroom, and then out to the hallway, and then, uh, you know, it just grew from there. And uh, Sublime Stitching is still operated from my home. I'm actually fortunate that I have space that accommodates that accommodates me still doing that, although we're, we're actually at the stage about growing it. Sublime Stitching was funded on a loan of $1,000 from my dad. And I think it would have been easier if I'd gone to a bank. <laughs> my dad made me break down everything, which was good, which was very good. Because basically my first business plan was explaining to my dad, okay, why is this going to work? Can't you already get embroidery patterns? No, dad, you don't get it. There are going to be cool patterns. Um, <laughs> How are you going to pay for your shipping? How are you going to do this? So I broke out a complete budget, and my budget included $200 for my first print advertisement. My first print ad appeared in Juxtapose magazine. They have $200 business card ads. So I, uh, I didn't receive funding for Sublime Stitching for the first five years. I operated on a cash-only basis. I'm not saying that was smart. I'm just saying that's what I did. I didn't make use of credit the way I could have to maybe grow it. But I was also really committed to keeping Sublime Stitching growing at a manageable pace. I'm not telling you I wasn't dreaming of like, some company will come and be my knight in shining armor and say, we think you're brilliant. We're going to give you, you know, endless resources to grow this. And I think as we all know that that, that pretty much doesn't happen. It could. And there's a lot of times when it should. But it doesn't. So... I learned, now, what the other thing is, you know, when people ask me for business advice, I always like to be very careful to say, I want to be encouraging, and I want to give you resources and share what I've learned, but I also like to stop short of saying, like, you can do it. If you do it, it'll be just like mine, and it'll be perfect and happy, and you'll quit your job in no time, because it doesn't happen that way. And I never want to mislead people into thinking, into thinking that. What's happened with my company has been an incredible mixture of hard work, but also luck, an enormous amount of support from other people who have offered it freely, for which I'm truly grateful. The right time, this movement, and all of those things came together. So making it happen is, is, is a lot. And also loving it. You can't do something like this without enjoying it or you'll hate it real, real quick. And believe me, I've gotten burned out. I've gotten taken to the end of my rope. I've thrown myself down on the floor beating my hands crying. I can't do this anymore. It, all of that. But I wouldn't trade it. I wouldn't trade it for anything. It's been a remarkably rewarding experience. And it's put me in contact with people and a community that I, I never could have imagined and endlessly surprises me. And I'm just getting into like sentimental BS here. This isn't actually constructive or helping. Um, so one of the things, you know, you know, I think, uh, I think what we all have going for us is resourcefulness. You know, there gets to be a lot of talk about the punk movement. And my mom was saying, you know, she didn't really understand. You don't mind that I'm using you as an example. <laughs> you know, she was saying, I don't understand the music. I don't understand why the music gets compared to this. I said, it's not the music, it's the ethic. It's the punk ethic. The punk credo was DIY. Do it yourself. Pull together your own resources when you have none. Don't 
cry and wait for somebody else to make it happen for you. You do it yourself. And so I always told people that I felt like the way I knew how to market my company when I started was how to market the band I used to be in with handbills, with flyers, with word of mouth, with community support, but most importantly, offering something that you believe in, something that you enjoy doing, and something that you're honest and upfront about so that you can have real relationships with people. And that's the thing that I enjoyed when I started the company. I had this idea of like, if I run a company, I can run it the way I want to. I can do the things that I think a company should do. I can treat people the way they're down with that. <laughs> I, can, I can treat other people the way I want to be treated. And so that, that something that I could just feel good about. <laughs> so for example, I have an artist series. I thought um, when I started Sublime Stitching, I, I loved the collaborative effort of it on many different levels. I liked that I would draw something offered as a pattern, it would go out to lots of other people, they would embroider it and then send it back to me and say, look what I made with it. And each version would be different, but it would still be based on my drawing, and that was just, you know, it's still, I get dorky thrills from it. It's really, it's wonderful. It's, it's, it's a nice connection. It puts me, it makes a connection with that person, even if I can't, like, know them personally or speak with them. So... Another thing I wanted to do was I started reaching out to other artists, especially comic book artists, because I grew up reading comics. I love independent comics. It's just part of something in our house all the time, something my brother was putting in front of me that my mom wasn't always happy about. And I wanted to start embroidering comic art. Then I started thinking, well, you know, how traditionally how a lot of commercial craft design companies work with artists is the artwork is offered anonymously. So let's say, you know, I'll just use Mitch O'Connell as an example. So traditionally, Mitch O'Connell would have been approached and said, we love your artwork, we want you to design for us, but he would be expected to do the design work anonymously for the company. I wanted to offer embroidery patterns that mixed the work of artists that were known, whose style was recognizable, and put their name on it and say, you can get Mitch O'Connell embroidery pattern. You know, of course you could do this yourself. You know, you can take his artwork and you can, make a, you can make a design from it and embroider it. I wanted to make these patterns available, but more importantly, I wanted to have a working relationship with these artists that they felt good about and that I felt good about. So part of the time that I was running Sublime Stitching, it was from a hospital computer library while my dad was sick. I uh, had one assistant back in Texas, and I didn't want to, I, 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 needed, I needed to keep business going, so there was, I was thrilled, I was like, there's a, there's a library in the hospital, there's a computer, they have internet access, and being able to answer customer emails, while my dad is in a coma, having people write me and say, I'm so happy, I can't believe I got this pattern, look what I made, was just gold to me, and it got me through and I thrived on it. So... We had assistants, and then last year, I have a staff of four right now. I have two full-time, and I have two part-time, as of last year. Mary is my general manager. Jessica does marketing and helps keep up with emails, and they're, they're amazing. And they are grossly underpaid. I would pay them more if I could. The thing that I find most satisfying in running the company, one of the things that it went from gosh, wouldn't it be great if I could make a living at this? And then once I got to that point, I was like, I really need help. I thought it would make me so happy if I could pay somebody else, pay their living, and if they enjoyed doing this and, and, and grow from there. So 
I kind of discovered as I was running the company that I found it really satisfying to learn how to bring a business together. Actually enjoyed that. I enjoyed keeping my books. I don't anymore. Uh, <laughs> I enjoyed keeping, and, and that was the thing is when it was small enough, I I could do everything, and that was, in a way, that was my favorite time for Sublime Stitching was when it was just small enough that I was actually doing everything. I was keeping my books, I was paying my taxes, I was answering customer emails, I was folding patterns, I used to hand stamp all the, I loved doing that, that was the other thing, is I used to have a rubber stamp made of what the pattern theme was, and I'd sit there and hand stamp on them. And, and I actually missed that, I went in the office the other day because I was really stressed out, and Jordan was folding instructions, like, mm-hmm, folding instructions with you. So where we are today right now with Sublime Stitching is we are, Sublime Stitching has been lucky to get enormous press. We get great press and that's been great. I always want people to remember that we have a really big name and we have a really big presence, but we are a teeny, teeny, tiny company. We still struggle to grow. And one of the things that I've learned with running a company is that that is always the issue, is getting resources to grow to the next level. Um, Because the demands of us are constantly there, it's always a struggle for us to get to the next step. You know, I think there's a lot of interest in this community about copyright and about legal issues. Uh, I know that there's a lawyer here speaking who, has she already spoken? She, no, copyright that's tomorrow. I, want, I would like to hear, actually hear that. You know, for example, the history of the company, we have had, so one of the things, I, there's a lot of discussion about this. Copyright is something that I think if it's an issue to you, you will be best served by retaining a lawyer or by actually getting consultation from a lawyer. And the reason I say that is is people love to go online and give their opinion of what they think copyright law should be. And I'm not going to say that that's not valuable because I think it's a very robust and very lively debate that deserves a lot of discussion. But unfortunately, people tend to get in the position of telling other people the way it is, and then a lot of common knowledge gets passed around that actually has no basis in the law. The other thing that disappoints me is that there seems to be this attitude of, well, I'm just going to get ripped off, I might as well just wait for it to happen, and when it does, there's nothing I can do. Yes, you can. And yes, we can. (laughs) The thing that I have learned very well recently is how strong this community is. Now, I'm not all for witch hunts, and I'm not for splitting hairs. And I think there is a time to share things, and I think there is a time to guard things. I'm fascinated by copyright issues. For me, it's fairly black and white because I do illustration. All my illustrations are copyrighted and blah, blah, blah. I want people to be informed. I want people to inform themselves. One of the things that happened with me and my company was within the first two years, I had a major manufacturer release a line of clothing with my designs on them. And they were appearing in retailers nationwide. They were being manufactured in India. I found out about this um, because Lisa Petrucci wrote me. She was in Seattle and she was in a store and she said, Jenny, I don't know if you have a licensing deal with this company. Maybe you do, but if you don't, you should know about this. Boom. (laughs) You know, and there were my designs unaltered all over clothing. So this isn't something that was brought out into the public because it was a, a, a legal situation between me and this other company. We successfully stopped them without going to court. I'm always reluctant to say we settled out of court, which we did, because for some reason people tend to think settled out of court means like, I got a million dollars, and it's like, no. At best, I got my legal fees covered, but what I lost was time and energy and money that I needed then to grow my company. 
So when this happens to you, because people also say like, ooh, actually it's kind of cool if you get ripped off because you like get to sue them and it's exposure for you. I mean, I've, I've, I've actually heard people say that. And it's not. It's a losing situation, no matter what. You don't win. I didn't win in any of these situations. The only thing I won was that I succeeded in getting them to stop. And hopefully getting them to think about twice before they do it to the next artist, which is why it's so important for other artists. That's why I get so frustrated when other artists say, like, eh, I'm not gonna do anything. I'm just like, you're just making it easier for them to do it again. So that happened. Then about two or three years later, I had the same thing happen. I had uh, this was a little bit different. I had a mid-sized clothing company released a line of children's clothing with my designs on them. You must understand also that in both of these instances, I had records of these companies purchasing these designs from me. Um, yeah. Whenever one of the things I, I can share with you is that um, this company, when they their response was, in a nutshell, how could you do this to us? We're just a small company. We didn't know we were doing anything wrong. You're doing something wrong by trying to stop us. That's the standard response. I've heard it more than once, and it infuriates me. <laughs> it makes me feel angry. So we got them to stop. This is what I struggle with in these situations. So maybe there's a girl or a boy online, and they've got an Etsy shop, and they're selling my designs, and they're not saying where they came from. When I see that, I usually just write them myself. You know, hey, I don't really know if you understand. And the point is not, you're, you stand to make all of this money off of me. What is important is they need to know that they're weakening my copyright and they're exposing it to third-party infringers. Because I think we all know that at this point at our markets, there are scouts from major companies that are coming to see what we're doing. What are the cool kids doing? What are they making? That looks neat, okay, I'm gonna take that back and I'm gonna develop on it. Well, it very well may have been one of my designs that didn't appear with copyright notice or source information. So really my request to do licensing or to um, kind of you know ask for support and contribution from the makers and the small, it, it's for that reason. It's like you have to help protect these from me. It's not because I think you're bad and you're evil. I don't think you understand how it's making it vulnerable in other ways. And I'm telling you this so often, also if it might apply you know, to your business and what you're thinking of. And I think that's a, that's a tough thing to kind of navigate with people. So what I'm trying to say is, in those instances, usually we contact them or I contact them and just say like, hey, let's talk about this. I want to make sure you understand. And, let's just, and nine times out of ten, we just get it worked out. A decision is made when you see that it's a company of a certain size, when you see how aggressive they are with their marketing, when you see that they're wholesaling to retailers, then that's a decision of talking to your lawyer, I feel. Because there are very real things that have to be done that give you control and protect you. For example, you know, I don't want to bore you guys with a bunch of legal talk, but I have learned so much that there are very real reasons why you don't want to shoot off an angry email to a company. You want to go talk to a lawyer first. You want the situation to be sussed up. And you want to know what you can and can't do. And you also don't want to say something that could get you in hot water. You want to be fair, and you don't want, you know, when people throw mud, it kind of gets back on you, your hands get dirty, and you know, I just, I, I think that, I think that it's just, it's wise. So I encourage everyone to seek out, if you need to, you know, a, a good lawyer is one that should provide you with a free consultation, and, and a good lawyer will tell you whether or not they need you. Hang on one second, I, I'm gonna wrap it up, and then I'll do question and answer. So.
I have been really stressed out and exhausted in the last couple of weeks, so I hope my talk hasn't been too rambly or unfocused. I just, uh, again, I want to thank all of you for, for coming and listening to me talk. I hope that I gave you the information you wanted about my company. I'm going to leave the last 20 minutes open for questions and answers. I'm here afterward doing an embroidery workshop. Any and all of you are welcome to be here for that. I only have 30 kits, though. You don't need anything. I have everything supplied, and I'll, I'll show you how to stitch. And now I'll take questions. Thank you, guys. The questions and answers portion of the audio can be found on the HelloCraft website. We would also like to thank all of the speakers who came from near or far to share their stories with us. Unfortunately, we were unable to record Friday's Craft Note with Etsy.com CEO Maria Thomas. It did stream live on the virtual labs, so I hope some of you caught it. She was really great. We do have audio for the Going Out on a Limb session with Biggs and Featherbell and Jeffrey Everett. This will be part of episode 13 of the podcast, so make sure you tune in. We'd also like to thank the Summit of Awesome class of 2009 attendees for joining us. We encourage everyone listening to the podcast to seek out their own crafting community. At the very least, it will keep you sane, but hopefully it will encourage you to do something awesome. Hello Craft is produced by me, Tina Seamonster, and edited by the lovely Chrissy Downing.